undercover officer is patrolling the streets of Oakland. Let's call him Sam. It's summer and it's hot. Sam's worked enough years on the force to know that long summer days can lead to short tempers. And he's alert as he scans passing faces. As he reaches the corner, he squints at a glass office tower that fills the block. Then something catches his eye on the hill to the left. There's a man standing there and something seems off. The guy's beard is scraggly, his clothes are torn. He's out of place in the sea of business suits swirling around him. The man is black, maybe mid-30s, a similar build and skin tone as Sam. The officer feels a familiar tingle on his neck and says to himself, something's not right with this guy. He takes a few steps up the hill and the man starts down in Sam's direction. What's he up to, the cop wonders. As he gets closer, the nervous feeling gets more intense. Could he have a gun? Sam quickly looks him up and down for a telltale bulge in his waistband. Nope. And he doesn't appear to be reaching into his pockets for a weapon either. In fact, he's not really doing anything remarkable except slowly walking towards him. Still, Sam can't shake the feeling that this guy is armed. Then, as he crosses the street towards the building, Sam loses sight of him. Then he finds him again. Now the man is inside the glass building, and he's acting strange. When Sam quickens his pace, he does too. When Sam slows down, so does he. Now Sam's convinced. Something's about to go down, and he has to act. Now. He turns to confront the man just as the man turns too. They stand face to face. The officer looks into his eyes, and something strikes him with a jolt. He's looking at his own reflection in a mirrored glass wall. He's a black undercover cop, and he's just profiled himself. He was the person he feared. As Sam continues to look into the suspect's eyes, his own eyes, he asks himself, how is this possible? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club along with authors Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant to connect people to some of the boldest new thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, implicit racial bias, how it shapes our perception, our decisions, and our culture, and what we can do about it. The story you just heard about the police officer is true. It was told to Stanford psychology professor Jennifer Eberhardt by the officer himself. Eberhardt was on tour talking about how implicit racial bias affects cops. The officer, who was black, couldn't understand how he could be tailing himself. But Eberhardt had some answers. She spent years studying how racial bias affects all of us in ways we don't realize. It's all in her new book, Biased uncovering the hidden prejudice that shapes what we see, think, and do. Next Big Idea Club curator Daniel Pink sat down with Eberhardt to discuss her research. Dan has written best-selling books about work, business, and human behavior. 
For some of our listeners, their conversation may be uncomfortable because racial bias and the impact it has on our society and culture aren't easy things to talk about. But that, Eberhardt says, is exactly why we have to talk about them. Jennifer, thanks for being with us. I have to say, this book changed me. It was a, had a monumental effect on me. I was shaken during much of it. And it, I, I now see the world differently afterwards. So I'm, I'm totally psyched to be talking to you. So let's get some of the basics out of the way here. Bias. Is that bigotry? No, it's not. I mean, I think a lot of people think about bias as bigotry. They're thinking about uh, people who were filled with hate, yeah. people who were burning crosses. Um, but, you know, when we're talking about bias here, we're talking about um, this sort of more subtle uh, process, this, this implicit or unconscious bias. It's a, a type of bias that we're all vulnerable to. Right. And we're vulnerable to it despite our motivations to be good and, and fair people. Right. And so, so is everyone at some level biased? Everyone at some level is vulnerable to acting on bias. Vulnerable yes. to acting on it. Yes. But uh, you had an experience in your childhood that I thought was really uh, interesting. I don't know, maybe it's the mm. seeds of your research here. I think it was, actually. So, yeah, when I was a kid, I, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, in an all-black neighborhood. And every relationship I had with you know, sort of anybody, well, any meaningful relationship I had, I should say, was with another black person. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, you know, it's pretty comfortable there. But then my parents decided when I was 12 years old that we were going to move to this nearby suburb mm -hmm. called Beachwood. Sure. And I didn't know much about Beachwood, but I knew no black people lived in Beachwood. Right. <laughs> so I was worried, you know, about going there and being this all white environment. Yep. And I didn't know how, you know, people would accept me and, you know, whether I would fit in, whether I would belong. So all those concerns. Right. And so, um, I get there and it turns out that the students were really nice to me. You know, they went out of their way, they, mm -hmm. they, they welcomed me mm -hmm. and they, you know, just were nice. They would show me around mm -hmm. and, you know, explain, you know, everything about the school mm -hmm. and kind of took care of the new kid sure. kind of thing. Uh -huh. uh, but I still had problems making friends and I had problems because I could not tell their faces apart. Mm -hmm. My brain was not practiced at recognizing white faces. And so I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know where to start. And I was just in a panic about it because I really wanted to have friends. I wanted to make friends, but, and, and all these students were nice. And, you know, I'd eat lunch with someone and I wouldn't know the next day, are uh -huh. you, are you my friend? Right. You know, are you the person I right. met, you know, ate lunch with? And it was just, it was, it was tough. And I couldn't understand what was happening to me. And I, I just felt like I had lost this basic skill that everybody has, yeah. and I didn't even know how to talk about it. And they would say to me, oh, well, you know, they, they just thought I was having trouble remembering the names. Sure. Right? Because I'm new and yeah. there's a lot of names. Yeah. But I, I really just could not tell one face from another. Right. And that was a problem. But th that was hard to, 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 to say, and it was hard to, it was just hard to talk about. Sure. And, and then I was worried that it would be offensive, too. Sure. Uh -huh. but, but I actually... Um, it, you know, it was the truth. You know, it, it, my brain had yeah. not caught up to this new experience I was having. Right. Right. Twelve okay. years in one environment. Now suddenly you're in a, in a new environment. Right. And and then I had to pay attention to things that I just didn't pay attention to before, like eye color. Sure. Yeah. I just I didn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. And so it was a real problem, and I didn't know how long it would last. Uh-huh. And you know, how long did it last? It, it lasted. I mean, for many for many months, uh, uh-huh. I, I would say. And uh, it, it's it's funny. I mean, people think about the brain as something. Okay, if you know, if you see a difference in the brain and how your brain is responding, right. that means it's fixed and it's there from birth and all of that. But it's just not true. Our brains are malleable, right? Our our brains are sort of figuring things out and it's changing all the time. And I didn't know it when I was a kid. Sure. My brain was changing as I got in that environment. You know, it, you know, it took a while, um, but my brain was able to like, figure out how to sort those faces. I, I became sort of much better at it uh, yeah. than, than I was yeah. going in. Do you think so, in any way that planted any of the seeds for your studying this? Sure, it did. Do you yeah. think so? I think so. You didn't say from that. Oh, I'm going to devote my life to studying the other race effect. No, <laughs> I didn't even know there was. Such right, a I don't thing. think there was anything. I don't think it was called that. What Daniel's referring to here, the other race effect, is the idea that people are better at recognizing people who look similar to them than members of other races. Scientists have been studying this for nearly 50 years, and it basically explains what Eberhardt experienced at school, that strange kind of blindness that felt too taboo to talk about. Well, researchers actually have found that this begins even at the age of of three months. So these are infants who are already showing a preference for faces of their own race as compared to faces of other races. But that comes from experience. It doesn't, and you you have research about that. So it's basically, if I'm used to looking at white faces, I have a preference for white faces. I'm, That's right. Your, your brain kind of gets sort of practiced on those faces. It gets tuned to faces, the, the faces that you're most familiar with. And then uh, the other faces that you're not seeing, right. um, you're, you're not going to see them um, to the same extent, or right, process right. them as deeply. Yeah. And certainly for a, for a three months old, there's, there's no animus underneath that. It's no. just how, how things are. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Now, this has some interesting implications. One of the things I love about the book is how deftly you've woven in stories about the world, stories about your own life, along with the, the research. And there's one story that has really stuck with me, which has to do with some crime that took place in the Chinatown section of Oakland. Oh. Tell us, tell us about that. What happened there? Yeah. So this is. So I, I went there. I was helping the Oakland Police Department with their reform efforts. So this was back in 2014, and uh, the crime rate was going down generally across the city, but there was a huge spike in crime in um, Oakland's Chinatown, and so it turned out that there were uh, black. Um, Teenagers really uh, going around and they were robbing um, middle-aged Chinese women. They they would uh, snatch their purses basically when they were walking in the shopping district. And the, you know, this kept happening and the cops kept trying to figure out who it was. And they would, you know, find people that they thought were, you know, the the suspects. And, but what happened was the Chinese women could not um, pick them out of a lineup. Because all these young African-American men looked alike to them. That's right. Right. Um, right. And and again, it's not necessarily animus behind that. It's just how we see the world. Now, let's get to that for a moment, because you you write a little bit about about our brains. Um, Our our brains are, in some ways, categorization machines. That's right. We always want to put things in categories. So does that mean at some level this idea of bias is somehow wired in us? Is that too? Is that taking things too far? Well, I mean, to to some extent, yes, it is, because our brain 
can't function without the work of categorization. Right. I mean, we're putting like things together. We're organizing things to sort of bring some coherence and order to the world. Mm-hmm. So, so we categorize and we categorize everything, right. uh, including people. Right. But when we categorize people, um, we're attaching, um, you know, sort of beliefs about the, the the people who end up in that category, right? Right. And those beliefs we call stereotypes. Absolutely. We're attaching attitudes, right. you know, to the people in there, and and that we call prejudice. And so if we add that up, sort of the prejudice and the and the um, stereotyping, you know, that together uh, is what we would call bias. You know, you 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 have like things together and then you mm-hmm. start to uh, develop beliefs about, you know, sort of how these things in, in, in you know, in this category function. And, mm-hmm. then, and when it's people, uh, we do the same kind of thing. And, and and to some extent, we need to do that. Right. We need to sure. develop shortcuts um, right. or, you know, trying to um, sort of think about uh, and make predictions about the things that we see. Right. And so it's very functional. Uh, but at the same time, it leads us into problems. And things get even more problematic when those shortcuts we all use find their way into our laws and institutions. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming healthcare technology. From artificial intelligence to robotics and beyond, health tech is reinventing what's possible. Every year, Medtronic improves the lives of 74 million people, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. Jennifer Eberhardt's book, Biased, explains how implicit biases become prejudices. They become fixed ideas in our minds, shortcuts or coping mechanisms for dealing with things that are unfamiliar or uncomfortable. But just how does that internal process make its way into the public sphere, into our businesses and institutions? Let's get straight to the point. You have a chapter in the book where you, that you call, you title, Male Black. Yeah. Why did you pick that title and what's the significance of that? Well, actually, it's a label uh, that police departments use all across the country to um, identify suspects. You're hearing on the dispatch, uh, the police radio, you hear male black, male black, male black all the time as an officer. And so I was interested in what impact that sort of repetitive pairing of, of, of people who are Male black with right. crime. Exactly. Yeah. How does that influence um, how they think? How does it influence you know how you know how the decisions that, that that they make on the street? Absolutely. But what you found was this incredibly tight association between crime and black. Right. Um, which has um, let's talk about how it developed, but then let's spend a little bit of time talking about the consequences of that. I mean, I think one of the ways in which it's supported is uh-huh. through. Um, you know, crime statistics. Yep. So we hear these statistics all the time, right? That um, statistics about the odds of African-American men ending up in the criminal justice system at some point in their lifetime. And mm-hmm. so sometimes it's one in four, sometimes it's one in three. Right. So so huge disparity, racial disparities there in who's incarcerated, uh, huge racial disparities in police officers, who they stop, oh, who they search, incredible. who they arrest, yeah. who they handcuff. All of those things, and that's right. all across the country. Right. And so there's um, this tight association that comes from 
just the you know the statistics on where people end up. Right. Um, there's also an association that gets amplified through the media. Uh, there's also an association um, that we pick up, even young children can pick up from watching how we respond to each other, how we move through the world. One of the very compelling anecdotes in your book has to do with one of your sons when he was just five years old and getting on an airplane. Tell us what happened. Yes. Yeah, so uh, we were on an airplane and my son is looking all around. He's really excited, right, to be on the plane with mommy. He's all wide eyed sure. and taking it all in. And he sees this guy on the plane and he says, hey, that that man looks like daddy. <laughs> and, and I and I look at the man and right. he doesn't look anything at all like my right. husband. Right. And so then I start to look around on the plane and I realize he was the only black man on the plane. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to have a talk right. with my five-year-old about how not all black people look alike. Right. Right. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to have this talk. And I'm, you right. know, so I'm kind of get it together in my mind. But before I started talking, I, I thought, well, you know, children see the world differently mm -hmm. from adults. And they haven't been conditioned to sort of see things in a certain way year after year after year. So maybe there's some resemblance there. Maybe there's something there that I'm not seeing. So I decided to give it a shot. And I look at the guy and I look at his height and there was nothing there. I looked at his weight, nothing there. Looked at his facial features, no resemblance, right? Skin color, no resemblance. I look at his hair and he has these long dreadlocks flowing down his back. And my husband shaves his head. And I thought, all right, okay. right. So, you're going to get the talk. You know, that's what I'm thinking. Absolutely. So I'm ready to give, you know, my child yeah. the talk. Yeah. And, and before I could say anything, he looks up at me and he says, I hope he doesn't rob the plane. Oh, boy. And I said, why would you say that? You know, daddy wouldn't rob a uh -huh. plane. And he said, yeah, yeah, I know. And I said, well, why would you say that? And he looks at me with this really sad face. And he says, I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I was thinking that. So we're living with such severe racial stratification that this Black Crime Association made its way into the mind of my five-year-old. And it makes its way into the minds of all of our children, into us. And it's not from... You know, watching movies or reading the newspaper. It's from watching us. You know, it's what, watching how we move through the world. And what does that indicate about it, the status of those people? It's from being in the world. And I yeah. think what's so interesting about that, just the, the astuteness is kind of breathtaking. But you can back that up with one of the studies you write about has to do with uh, Hollywood and uh, actors on TV. Well, this is a study that was conducted by several Tufts uh, researchers. Uh -huh. And yeah, they were interested in the role that the subtle bias could play in the media. And they took uh, shows, very popular shows, I think the 11 most popular uh -huh. shows in, in the U.S. at the time, CSI, Miami, and they looked at Grey's Anatomy right. and all these shows, right? And they found uh, that Black actors received more sort of negative, um, um, sort of nonverbal behavior from the other white actors right. on the set. Uh, so, so that's what they, yeah. they found. And explain how they did that, because I thought the way that they they constructed that was really interesting. Basically, they would splice out the the black actor uh -huh. um, 
and they would just look at uh, the surrounding actors. Right. And they were interested in nonverbal behavior. So they right. were looking at, so they um, turned the sound down and they just had people look at their faces. Right. Did they grimace? Right. Or was there a frown? Right. Uh, or did they move away? Right. You know, uh-huh. sort of those kinds yeah. of things. Um, they didn't tell them, they didn't instruct them on what actual behaviors to look at. No, but they right, just right, said, right. hey, just, you know, sort of tell me. Is this positive or negative uh, kind of emotion being directed in, 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 in that way? And they found just on that, these subtle things that those um, who uh, were responding to black actors had more negative nonverbal behavior. Yeah, which is just uh, amazing because I can't yeah. imagine that the actors themselves would have been aware no, of that. No, no, I don't think so. Not and at all. I don't know whether the people who are running the show. So, for instance, Grey's Anatomy is an African-American showrunner. Right. Shonda Rhimes who created that show. Whether they're even aware of that or whether it's just so commonplace that it yep. seems normal. I think it's so commonplace it seems uh, normal. And it, and it kind of goes to show you, too, because these are shows with, you know, positive characters, sure. black actors sure. who are in these positive roles, strong roles. Yeah. And people always say, well, it's the media, it's the media. If we have more, uh, you know, uh, positive, you know, black um, sort of characters on television and movies, you know, everything would be okay. But it goes to show you that it takes more than one thing. And and even when you try to move the needle in this direction, right. there, there's so, there's a current, you know, right, that, that you hit and that you and you can't right. um, actually penetrate it, it, right. it, it always. And so you, you, you're trying to prevent this thing uh, that you can end up spreading um, in these more subtle ways. And that was the thing that I actually found most interesting about that study, that it wasn't just the actors on the set, but the more you watch those shows, you know, the more it was that you would catch the bias of the, of the actors on the show. And so there was a bias contagion. And so bias spreads from the actors on a TV set to the people watching at home and ultimately into public institutions like the police and the courts. Yeah, so this is research that we did where we uh, took a, a real uh, data set that existed that um, was of cases uh, over a 20-year period of for people who had committed crimes in, in Philadelphia who were death eligible. Mm-hmm. And we went through that data set and we were able to get the photographs of the people uh, in the data set. And what we found was that uh, people who had more stereotypically black uh, you know, uh, physical features or facial features, they were um, more than twice as likely to ultimately receive a death sentence than those who had less stereotypical features. And this is controlling for the severity of the crime and all of the things you would think to control for. We even control for the defendant's attractiveness. And whatever uh we control for, we found that there was still... The more stereotypically black you were, the more likely you were to to get a harsher penalty, including the death penalty. Exactly. So the stakes can be literally life and death. Eberhardt makes an unsettling point that individual bias, aided by the way the human brain works, spreads and morphs into shared bias, which plays out in big systemic ways. Which means the challenge isn't just to weed out a few racist cops or negative stereotypes on TV. It's to think about our own role, too. Chances are we won't sit on a jury in a death row case. But what about a hiring committee at work? Yeah, so this was research that was first conducted by Diva Pager. Uh And she's a sociologist. And uh, basically, she sent people um, with resumes to, you know, to, to apply for positions with 
you know, potential employers and either uh, the people she sent, they were black or they were white. Um, they were trained, again, to, to behave in the same way. They were about the same age, again, controlling mm-hmm. for everything they could except for race. Um, and they also manipulated on the resume uh, whether the person had a criminal record or not. And they found two things. One, um, as you might guess, that the people with the criminal record were um, less likely to get a call back from right. the employer right. than people who had no you know, criminal record, right. they also saw um, a race effect there. A big race effect. A big race effect. <laughs> a big race effect where you know, African-Americans were less likely to be called back than white Americans. And, and that effect was so strong that they found that even um, African-Americans who had a clean record, right, uh, they were no more likely to get a call back from an employer than a white a person who had a criminal record. So, so let's talk about um, uh, one interesting example you had uh, has to do with with housing. Let's talk right. about different elements of housing. Sale price of homes, for instance, was mm-hmm. kind of shocking to me as well. Yeah. So we did a study where we were interested in the role that race played um, in the housing market, and you know there have been lots of these studies done by sociologists where, but they're like sort of big correlational studies, yeah. kind of uh-huh. showing you know homes in this area you know are worth you know less than homes in this other that kind of thing. What we wanted to do is to take the same exact home right. and have it um, you know be a home that's occupied either by a black family right. or a white family everything else is identical right. right about the home the features of the home and so forth to see if you're given the same house the same you know sort of uh, you know home to consider like how what is the role that race is playing in how you would evaluate that home and we found that they evaluated the home more negatively when we asked them to um, imagine uh, the neighborhood surrounding the oh, home, yeah, uh-huh. right? So we didn't give them any information right. about the neighborhood. Right. We just said, imagine, you know, what the neighborhood is like. They imagined a neighborhood that was more run down. They imagined a neighborhood that was more crime-ridden, uh, poorer schools, uh, fewer financial um, institutions, so on and so forth. So it, so it was. Um, you know, just with a single black family, you know, we can have all of these associations right. kind of come online and then influence our decision making. It influences whether we're going to buy that house, how much we want to pay for that home. It influences, you know, sort of even even how much work needed to be done on the house before you could put it on right. the market. So simply imagining yeah. neighbors yeah. who are black led yeah. that home to be yeah. worth twenty two thousand yeah. dollars less. Yeah. 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 And, it's, and but we've seen this before. I mean, it's it's it's. Again, it, it, it's a combination of both our nature and the society we live in. It's that there always is this uh, certain view of outgroups. Yeah. Uh, there, you know, we have in-groups and outgroups, obviously, sturdy finding in all of social science. Um, but every once in a while, the outgroups are characterized as dirty. You know, and we see it now in some of the language and politics now. Those people are disgusting. For immigrants. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Vermin or you, for the whole idea of oh, we don't want those dirty Jews living around us. Yeah. Um, And so it's such a pernicious problem. Yeah. Um, But let's talk about some solutions. Pernicious indeed, and deeply embedded in our brains and our society. But Jennifer Eberhardt says we're not beyond hope. Okay, so implicit bias is deeply rooted in our brains, which means there's not a lot we can do to change it. 
But Jennifer Eberhardt says we can change the way it affects our decision-making. And the biggest thing we need to do is slow down. Because we know that implicit bias stems in part from this mental categorization process that's intended to help us sort information and make decisions quickly. We talked about this before. These split-second judgments may have helped us survive mortal threats back in the day, but they can cause big problems when it comes to things like race. But if we slow that process down, and if we take some extra effort to reflect on what we're doing or about to do, we can make more rational, less fear-driven decisions. To illustrate, Eberhardt tells Dan Pink about her work with an app called Nextdoor. It's an online platform where people ask their neighbors questions and share advice. They noticed profiling right. on, on the uh, platform where people would look out their window and they would see a black man. Usually it was a black man in an otherwise white neighborhood. And they would go you know, to their computer and start you know, calling out to all the neighbors, suspicious person in the neighborhood, you know, look out, beware. Sometimes they would call the police. And, um, and oftentimes this was, you know, for in cases where the person wasn't doing anything, right. you know, any, nothing suspicious. It was his social category uh, that was suspicious, that he was a black man that was suspicious. Right. So they're trying to figure out, well, what do we do? How right. do we curb this? So um, the uh, one of the founders of Nextdoor, you know, contacted me and other researchers and also read through the literature to try yeah, to figure out yeah. how do we curb this and yeah. came to the conclusion, well, what we need to really do is to slow people down, right? Exactly. We need to slow them down so that they don't just get on it because exactly. they're in a heightened state, right? They exactly. want to alert their neighbors right, right. away. Um, and they're they're worried, they're threatening, they want to protect everyone. And so it's one of those situations where, you know, bias can you know, can get the best of you and affect um, how you're making decisions. Right. So, but the issue was with the slowing down is um, that it was kind of against um, the main philosophy behind building these tech products. They're all about removing friction. Friction is like tech kryptonite. For a company like Nextdoor, the interface is everything. Their goal is to create an easy, quick user experience. Intentionally adding friction would be a huge gamble for their business. But they did it anyway. They ended up saying, okay, this is an important problem. Right. We're going to have to take the risk, introduce this friction. So, so now when you hit the crime and safety tab as a mm -hmm. neighbor and you try to go right. shout out to everyone, right. suspicious black man right. or whatever it is, um, you have to slow down. You have to look at a checklist and uh -huh. go through this checklist. There are three items on the checklist. Yeah. Um, you're asked, what is it about the person's behavior right. that right. makes them suspicious? It right. can't be black man. It can't be social, the social category. Right. You're asked um, to describe the, the, the person in detail. Right. Uh, it can't be you just describe you're saying black man as a description. It has to be detailed so that, you know, you're not sweeping all these people under this broad category and making them all vulnerable. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third uh, thing was that they defined what racial profiling was. A lot of people didn't know what the definition was. They didn't even know they were engaging in profiling. Right, right. So just that information right. was good. And then they said, this is prohibited on the platform. So again, you're setting a norm for exactly. what is permissible behavior, right? right? right. And right. they found with this checklist, but first I'll, I'll tell you, they, they have this saying there. So, you know, you've seen these signs, I, I think in um, New York, you see them in subways as well as in uh, airports. If you I, see something, say something. I was I was thinking about that. I'm literally, on the, we're, we're talking in New York. Yeah. I live in uh -huh. Washington, D.C. I came up on Amtrak and, uh -huh. and Amtrak, they have this, 
You see something, say something. You right. see something, say something. But you have a better approach to that. Well, they did. Oh, so, it's your, so, they, uh -huh. so they modified uh -huh. that. So it's if you see something suspicious, say something specific. And so that's what they were shooting for. And they found just with this checklist, slowing people down, adding the friction, yep. they were able to curb profiling by over 75% yep. on the platform. That's really, I mean, that's really extraordinary. And, and, and again, what, what... So how would this checklist system work in more high-stakes situations? Can we really expect police officers, for example, to stop what they're doing and go through a list of questions when they see something they read as a threat? Eberhardt says, yeah, we can. She's built and implemented a checklist system for the Oakland Police Department which had a particularly heavy history of problems related to racial bias. The checklist targeted their foot pursuit policy, which was basically just chase the suspect. The original policy, they, they would chase people um, even when they lost sight of the person, mm -hmm. even when the person went into an in, enclosed space uh, where they couldn't be seen and so forth. And um, that, that was leading to a lot of problems and, yeah. and, and people getting hurt and so forth. Including so, police officers themselves. Yes, including the police yeah. officers. Um, so what they did was they changed the policy. So um, they would, if they lost sight of the person, if the person went into some un, un, you know, sort of enclosed space, they were not allowed to follow them into it anymore. Um, they were told to, you know, to slow down. They were told to step back. They were told to call for backup exactly. and so forth. And so, so again, slowing down. Um, so they found that with that simple change, they were able, they used to have uh, eight to nine officer-involved shootings a year. Now they have had eight officer-involved shootings in the last five years right. with that change in policy. Right. Um, so, and then uh, you, you mentioned officer safety as well. Mm -hmm. um, so officers used to get hurt going sure. into these situations and, and the injuries um, went down, shot down by 75%. So, so small changes that also, by the way, protects officers from bias, right? Because sure. if you're in a situation, you can't see the person, it's dark, you're in an enclosed space, you don't know what's going to happen. You have to, you know, make a decision really right. quickly. Right. Um, and you're, you're fearful, you're threatened, all of this. Um, you know, these are the situations that uh, lead to bias affecting your decision making. Right. So, so you can protect people and, and, and you can get the protection from bias uh, for free. But I'm interested in sort of your conversations with police officers and how they responded to you, perhaps how you began to convince them that this was actually good for the entire system. Yeah, that's a great question. So that took some time. So yeah. we were there a couple years and then we released a report uh -huh. and they didn't like the report we released at all. You know, we found you sure. know, the racial disparities, right. the, the typical, right? Yeah. That, they were um, stopping more African-Americans mm -hmm. disproportionately, right? right, searching them and, and, and so forth. But they felt like they had good reason for that. They felt like they had um, what they call intelligence that led them to make the right, stops right. on those people. And those were the people committing crimes. And, right. of course, they would have to stop them. And so that would explain right. uh, why the disparities were there. And it wasn't right. biased. Right. And so they were upset with us, the Stanford researchers, because we were leading people to believe that they were racist or that they were biased and mm -hmm. that they weren't. Uh, they were just doing their jobs. Um, they were doing they were engaged in good policing. So we sat down with them after we uh, produced the report and 
you know, sort of talk to them about the concerns. And uh, the, the big concern was this whole thing that that they had intelligence on these people. Sure, they, uh-huh. they had evidence, right, you know. So right. so we said, OK, well, we, we actually couldn't track that at the time. The department wasn't keeping that information. Right. We can't analyze data we don't have. Right. So let's figure out how to track it. So right. we, we ended up. So officers, every time they make a stop um, of, of someone in mm-hmm. Oakland, they have to complete a form that, that says why they made the stop. Right. And the location of the stop and right. so forth. So what we did is we simply decided to add an, an, another question to uh-huh. that form. Was that stop, is the stop intelligence led? Yes or no? So for every single stop, they have to stop and they have to think about whether it. uh-huh. it's intel led. Do uh-huh. they have credible you know, right. information to tie that person right. to a crime? Right. And so we found that simply adding that question made a difference. Right. So so now every time it was like changing their mindset. So you're, you're getting them to, to think about evidence and to not to act on intuition exactly. about who's committing right. crime. Right. And then they're also thinking about, well, what stop, you know, what, which are the stops um, are, are stops that are high priority stops for the department? Which are the kinds of stops that we want, that we right. care about? Right. Um, and, and how many of those stops have I made? And so it, it changes the calculus around this, right. right? And so we found that before that question was added, uh, I think Oakland had about 32,000 stops that they made of people across the city. Uh-huh. But after that question, they had only 19,000 stops. Wow. Uh-huh. So it was a 40% drop That's significant, in the yeah. number of stops. Yeah. And a lot of this was due, again, to the pause, to the reflection, to the thinking, do I need to do this? It's friction and thinking. I mean, yeah. adding that question is introducing friction into yes. the decision making. And it's yeah. also forcing de- uh, deliberateness, at least. Yes. deliberation, something right. like that. Yeah. Right. So I think that's actually really powerful. And that, and that, that got me thinking that, that, okay, what we need to do here is we need to slow down. Right. You to think introducing friction in systems can actually be beneficial to the right. entire system. And it also has this cascading effect is if there are fewer unnecessary stops, police officers are freed up to do more important work. Right. Uh, maybe that begins ever so slowly building greater community trust and, and so forth. Right. 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 But are you in, in general recognizing the depth of this problem? I mean, where are you on kind of the, the hopefulness scale? Are you hopeful about our ability to make this problem less of a problem? Yes. You are. Yeah. What, what gives you that hope? What gives me the hope is because, you know, I, you know, I see sort of every day mm-hmm. um, examples of how uh, people are able to manage bias, to mitigate bias. And I see it not only with people, like everyday people wanting yeah. to, to do this for their own lives, right. but I see this with institutions. So we mm-hmm. talked about next door, right? Yeah. Um, so next door, you know, they're setting that if, if we're saying that bias is conditional mm-hmm. and it kind of depends on the situation mm-hmm. you're in, when you have an institution, that institution sets the conditions. It sets the, 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 the situational environment that everybody's in under that system. Right. And so there are a lot of, of, of minds that you can shift at one time. And that's what next door did. That right. They're in 95 percent of yeah. the neighborhoods in this country. So with that checklist, you know, people being sort of forced to slow down. Right. That's a lot of people right. who are put in a different uh, frame of mind right. as they're making decisions like this with a, right. with a better outcome. Right. And so that, that makes me hopeful. It's a book that I think will change a lot of people. Jennifer Everhart, thank you so much. Thank you.
If you have thoughts about Biased or other books in our series, we'd love you to join the conversation at nextbigideaclub.com. You can subscribe to the club and the podcast and get a free copy of Malcolm Gladwell's latest book, Talking to Strangers. Podcast listeners get an additional 10% off with promo code PODCAST. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed. A special thanks today to Jennifer Eberhardt. Her new book, Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do, is available wherever books are sold. Thanks also to Daniel Pink, who conducted this interview. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. The Next Big Idea is curated by Susan Cain, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, and Daniel Pink. This episode was written by Emma Cortland and produced by Michael Kovnat. Sound designed by David Grabowski. Our associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering. 